series in the book of Jonah today, so take your Bibles and go to Jonah chapter 4. Our text is Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, but I'd actually like to start in chapter 3, verse 10 to give it a little context. When God saw what they did, these are the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he sh- uh, until he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a day, and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word today confessing that we need you to give us understanding and that we will be sustained by your truth because as the psalmist writes, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Amen. Jonah chapter 4 probably qualifies as one of the most surprising endings in the Bible. We tend to hold the prophets of the Lord in pretty high esteem, and rightly so. The prophets were examples of faithful servants who boldly spoke God's word to his people and to the world. And the prophets were ready to suffer, in many cases, for proclaiming God's words. It's hard to imagine one of the Lord's prophets pouting in anger this way in response to the Lord's will. And yet here's Jonah, the very prophet, the very instrument of the Lord 
whose preaching has brought Nineveh to repentance and thus spared them from horrific judgment. And Jonah is angry with God. Why? Well, because at the bottom of it all, the simple answer is that he is out of line with God's saving purposes in the world. He is out of sync with God's mission. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the message of the book. What did Jonah think that meant? Those were the very words Jonah himself proclaimed from inside the fish that had saved him from drowning at the bottom of the sea. In conclusion of his psalm of gratitude to the Lord for his compassion, Jonah declares salvation belongs to the Lord. What did Jonah think that meant? Jonah chapter 4, we learn from the Lord's dealing with the pouting prophet three indicators that we might be out of line with God's wise and good and saving purposes that we might be out of sync with God's mission. So I want to encourage you today, as we finish the book of Jonah, to test yourselves according to these indicators. Number one, you might be out of line with God's mission, out of sync with God's mission, if you resent God's compassion toward others. If you resent God's compassion toward others, especially others whom you deem to be unworthy of his compassion. Verse 2 tells us finally why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh in the first place back in chapter 1. And it's not that he was afraid of the violent, dangerous Assyrians. It's not because he misunderstood God's plans and intentions. It isn't that his theology was bad. In fact, Jonah demonstrates in everything that he says that his theology is right. He has good, sound, accurate understanding of who God is. No, it's because he hated the Assyrians. And knowing well the Lord's readiness to forgive, he suspected that the Lord would act compassionately and he dreaded it. But why does Jonah hate the Assyrians so much? It could be that he feels this way about all Gentiles, everybody outside of the nation of Israel, uh, everyone who is not under the covenant, in this covenant relationship with God. There was a, a right and holy separation that God demanded of his people. But, and, and that led often to a a hatred, and a snobbery toward Gentiles, those outside of Israel. But Jonah doesn't, display, doesn't seem to display this kind of animosity toward the sailors in chapter 1. He gets on a ship manned, crewed by Gentile sailors, pagans. This doesn't seem to bother him. He even seems concerned for their well-being when the storm 
almost destroys the ship and sinks them. He gives himself up when he understands that the storm is there because he's on board that ship. He tells them what they can do to save their own lives, even at the cost of his own life. He doesn't seem to be bitter about their living through the storm, even though he's going into the sea. No, there seems to be some particular hatred of the people of Nineveh. And here's my guess as to why, even though the text doesn't say this explicitly. This is me kind of reading in the white spaces, but it puts the puzzle together, I think. As I mentioned when we began the book of Jonah, Jonah's mission to Nineveh takes place sometime in the first half of the 8th century BC, so about 800 years before Jesus is born. This is the late 700s BC. You got to think backwards because it's counting up or counting down to zero. In 722 BC, Assyria would sweep out of the north and would ravage the northern kingdom of Israel, which is where Jonah's from, where his prophetic ministry is. These would be the ten tribes that make up the northern kingdom of Israel. At the height of the Assyrian invasion, they would destroy Samaria, which was the northern kingdom's capital city, and the Assyrians would deport the Jews, they would enslave them, sell them as slaves, and intermarry with them. About a hundred years later, the Babylonians would invade the southern kingdom, Judah, sack Jerusalem, and deport the Jews of the southern kingdom into slavery in Babylon. Those Jews would return to the land 70 years later. However, the northern kingdom would never return. There is a phrase by which we identify these 10 tribes of Israel, the lost tribes of Israel. It's because they never made it back. So God would use the kingdom of Assyria as a rod of punishment against his own people for rejecting him, for their unfaithfulness to the covenant, for disobeying his law, for worshiping idols, which is exactly what he had said he would do all along. I believe Jonah knows this will happen. He is a prophet of the Lord. And whether or not he has received some prophetic word from the Lord or knowledge that this would take place, or whether he has just been privy to other prophecies and put the pieces together, standing in the presence of the Lord as a prophet ready to be assigned, Jonah understands that the Lord will use Assyria to punish Israel. And I believe this is why Jonah hates the Assyrians intensely. Now, this starts to make sense because, remember, Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord back in chapter 1, meaning that he was resigning his commission as prophet. He was walking away. He was saying, I will not serve you anymore. Because when the Lord called Jonah and said, go, arise, go to Nineveh, Jonah said, I know, I know what this means. I know you plan to destroy my people by them, and I know you. You'll forgive them. You'll pardon their sins. You'll spare them. This assignment is completely unjustifiable to me, and there is no way I will take part in it. 
I'm on the boat for Tarshish. I think this explains why he reacts this way in chapter 4 and explains why he did what he did in chapter 1. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful or compassionate, same word, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, and I wanted disaster. I wanted them wiped out. And I would rather die than to see them spared. So the Lord challenges Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? Which is saying, are you right to be angry? Is your anger justified? This is a rhetorical question, and it's a stinger. Because Jonah is accusing the Lord of being unjust. That his compassion toward Nineveh is unjustifiable. The Lord's question is a gentle confrontation, making a very, very sharp point that it is Jonah's anger, his resentment, that are, in fact, not justifiable. And the question is meant to help Jonah evaluate his heart and to see this himself. If salvation belongs to the Lord, do you have a right to be angry? Which is maybe why Jonah walks off without answering the question, verse 5, because it's meant to make him evaluate. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, Nineveh had already been spared, so I take this to mean that Jonah wondered if the Ninevites might blow it, (laughs) might be destroyed after all. And so he's camping it out in the bleachers, hoping for fireworks, not for salvation. Jonah is not up there interceding for the Ninevites. Could be that he's just curious. But it is precisely because the Lord's question goes unanswered that we are supposed to keep this question in mind as the following object lesson unfolds at Camp Jonah. So you might be out of line, out of sync with God's mission if you resent God's compassion toward others, especially others that you deem unworthy of God's compassion. Secondly, you might be out of sync with God's mission if you take for granted God's compassion toward you. If you take for granted God's compassion toward you. Verse 5 says that Jonah made a booth for himself. So this is some sort of a a lean-to, a shelter. It's probably uh, made out of scrub bushes and scraps of twigs. Whatever the booth is, It apparently is ineffective against the heat and the sun because Jonah is in discomfort. And so the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over 
Jonah. So again, we see the Lord's sovereign command over creation. He hurled a storm across the face of the sea. He appointed a great fish. He will appoint a worm. He will appoint a a scorching wind. Here he appoints or assigns a plant to grow strategically and provide customized shade and relief for Jonah. Verse 6 says, to save or deliver him from his discomfort. You see the picture. The word, by the way, discomfort here is the same word evil. It's the word that is translated disaster in chapter 4, verse 2. It is the word for the Ninevites' immorality, their evil, a moral evil. It's this word disaster for the catastrophe or judgment that God is bringing, they are in danger of. And it is this word for what Jonah is suffering. He is suffering catastrophe from this heat. He is suffering discomfort or evil. So we can see being worked out, illustrated in a small and very personal way for Jonah what has played out on the big stage of salvation. He is being delivered from this evil of discomfort in the same way that the Ninevites have been delivered or saved from their evil ways and the evil of God's judgment. Not that Jonah gets it. By the way, just as a note of interest, this plant was early on in the days of the church translated as a, into the word gourd, some sort of plant. Okay. No one actually knows what it is. By the way, this is what theology Bible geeks do when they're left alone with their Bibles. They get into figuring out if this is a gourd or not. But here's, here's the point of interest. Jerome, an early church father in the 4th century, came along and he decided to translate the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament into Latin. And he created a Latin translation called the Vulgate. This is what was used by the Roman Catholic Church all of the centuries, why the priests spoke in Latin and always did all their Bible readings in Latin. It was Jerome's Vulgate. Jerome translated the word into castor oil plant. This is getting interesting, isn't it? A city rioted over the translation. Now, I say this as a point of interest because we live in Seattle. Okay. Where protests, anybody can protest anything all the time. We live by protest. I just wish they would protest bad Bible translations. I mean, if we're going to protest and riot... Let's, tra- let's do it over Bible translations, okay? It's just a point of interest. That's for free. We won't even charge you for that, all right? So it's a plant. That's all we need to know. It's a plant. And Jonah is stoked for the plant. Exceedingly glad is literally Jonah rejoiced over the plant with great rejoicing. So Jonah loves this plant. Jonah has named his plant. Jonah talks to his plant. It's lonely out there in the desert. 
especially if you're a prophet. It gets lonely. You get lonely assignments. Jonah loves this plan. I know, I know what it's like as a pastor in a minor way. I don't talk to my plants yet. But Jonah's out here on assignment, and he's, he loves this plan. It's the first time, the only time in the book of Jonah, we see Jonah happy. The plan is everything to him, which gives you a good lead into what happens. But, verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Now the Lord makes Jonah miserable. He makes him miserable. You know, the Lord will do this, okay? The Lord will do this. The writer of Hebrew reminds us that the Lord disciplines those he loves, and for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's Hebrews chapter 12. It's what Jonah is experiencing. The word attacked in verse 7, the worm that God appoints to attack the plant, and the words beat down, the sun beat down on the head of Jonah in verse 8. These are the same words. So the worm attacked the plant and the sun attacked Jonah's head. So here's Jonah out here baking. Also, the Hebrew word for anger is the word for hot. We do the same thing in English. We use the word hot for anger. If I say he's a hothead, I'm saying that guy's prone to anger. If we get a little hot under the collar, that's an idiom for uh, we're getting worked up, we're becoming angry. If we say a discussion became heated, we're saying that the two participants in the discussion began to rise in anger. The Hebrew uses the same play on words. And so the Lord is saying to Jonah, don't miss this, the Lord is saying to Jonah, if you insist on being hot, I'll make it hot. If you're going to insist on being angry, I will heat things up. And make it miserable. And Jonah, toasted like a bagel, suffering from sunstroke, miserable, begs, it is better for me to die than to live. So here is Jonah despairing of life because of the Lord's disciplining heat. So when I think of this scorching wind and this beating sun, it reminds me of a summer vacation my family took when I was 13. We drove from St. Louis, Missouri to Los Angeles, California in the middle of the summer in a Ford Econoline 300 that my parents had removed the rear seats out of. This was before seatbelt laws applied to the back seats. And my younger sister and I rolled around in the back of this uh, huge van in the summer heat that we could not turn the air conditioning on because it would overheat the engine. Mojave Desert middle of July and August, in the back of an account, the heat from the drivetrain coming up through the floor. It was, like, it was like riding across the country in a clothes dryer. 
okay? Hot air, just blow, open the windows, but it's just hot air. It's miserable. It's what Jonah's, it's what Jonah's experiencing. Good times, family vacation. I didn't despair of life, but Jonah does. He's bitter. And the great tragic irony of this is that Jonah himself has not once, but twice now known the Lord's compassion. Sinking to the bottom of the sea, drowning, being crushed by the depths and darkness, and being held fast by the grave The Lord compassionately sends a fish to save Jonah. And then there is the plant, suffering the evil of the discomfort of the heat. God sovereignly grows a plant over Jonah. But Jonah seems to have taken it for granted. Has Jonah failed to understand God's compassion toward him? Is God's design to show compassion toward others? I don't know how to see it any other way. That Jonah somehow sees himself as entitled. Takes it for granted that because he belongs to God and he belongs to the covenant people, that God's compassion is intended as an end point to him. And ultimately, Jonah despairs of life because he's replaced the Lord's program with his own. If we forget that all that we have in the way of grace and blessing and mercy is all by God's doing, and that salvation being redeemed, belonging to God, works its way out in mission and bestowing compassion on others. If we forget that, we take God's compassion for granted. And ultimately, it leads to forming our own agenda for Christianity. Whether that's our own walk or the Christian faith as a whole, The Lord has design in this misery for Jonah. It isn't punishment. It isn't spiteful. The Lord is correcting Jonah. He's correcting him. And the plant and the scorching wind and the sun are all meant to get Jonah's attention, to make a point. This is the object lesson unfolding. And? If we take God's compassion toward us for granted, we're out of sync with his mission in the world. Thirdly, you might be out of line with God's mission if you resist God's correction of your pride. You might be out of of line with God's mission if you resist God's correction of your pride. How do we know Jonah's proud? His (laughs) self-justification. Again, the Lord challenges Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Is your anger over the plant justified? Is it right? Jonah, in utter exasperation, answers, yes. Yes, I am justified. 
I have every right to be angry over the plant. In fact, I have so much right to be angry over the plant, I'm angry enough to die. The Lord puts his finger on the core problem because Jonah's anger comes from his conviction that the Lord is not justified in sparing Nineveh. That the Lord has not acted rightly. How could the Lord spare the wicked? How could the Lord spare those outside of a covenant relationship with him? Especially if those people were to brutalize his own people, his covenant people, how could that be justifiable? So the Lord takes the plant and the worm. By the way, Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, asked the same question. Habakkuk complained to the Lord about the violence in the land, the the lack of justice, and that the Lord was not acting. He was not protecting his people. He wasn't judging the wicked within the nation of Israel. And so he complains, and the Lord answers. He says, I'm going to, Habakkuk, don't you worry. I'm going to send in the Babylonians, and I'm going to discipline my people. And Habakkuk goes, okay, that's not the answer I expected. How can you use a more wicked people and raise them up to punish your own people? And God says, well, I'm going to destroy the Babylonians as well. Different situation, similar question about God's justice. Habakkuk believes the Lord, though. His song in Habakkuk chapter 3 is one of faith. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to trust you. Even though there's judgment and I'm going to see it all around me and I'm going to experience it myself, I'm going to trust you. It's not how Jonah's responding. But the Lord takes the plant and he takes the worm and he exposes Jonah as the one who is inconsistent, self-contradicting, unjustified in his anger. And he demonstrates how he himself, the Lord, is entirely just and consistent in how he has dealt with Nineveh, showing them compassion. Verse 10, Jonah, you had pity on the plant. You felt compassion for the plant in spite of three facts. First of all, you didn't earn or purchase the plant. You paid no cost, either in money or in sweat. You didn't labor, that's the term. You didn't labor for this plant. You also didn't make it grow. You didn't till the earth, you didn't plant the seed, you didn't nurture the plant, you didn't water the plant. You can't make any of those claims. And it came into being in a night and perished in a night. The plant was transitory. It was fleeting. It's temporary. Here and then gone. In other words, your pity, your affection, your compassion for the plant is not justifiable. How can you, Jonah, justify loving this plant when you didn't earn it, you didn't grow it, and it's a fragile thing that's here today and gone tomorrow? 
yet you claim a right to be angry. On the other hand, my compassion for Nineveh is entirely reasonable and justified. The text, how it's written, emphasizes the you, you, you didn't grow it, you didn't do this, yet I, I. So many persons, so many souls, 120,000. And as opposed to you who didn't create the plant, I did create them. I created the Ninevites. I have caused their lives to flourish or not flourish according to my designs. I gave them life. I did create them. And unlike the plant, they're eternal. They're eternal. They're not here today, gone tomorrow, ultimately. They are people They are souls, lives, persons. And they are people who do not know their right hand from their left. Again, this is an image, an an idiom. Who doesn't know their right hand from their left? A child. Children. So they are children, morally speaking. This is a moral description. It doesn't mean they're morally innocent because they don't know they're doing wrong. That's not what he means. It means they are morally helpless. They could never find their way out of their immorality. They could never find their way out of their their, uh, rebellion and therefore their condemnation under my judgment. They're helpless Just like a child who doesn't know there is a right shoe and a left shoe, the Ninevites had lost all sense of right and wrong to such a degree that they couldn't distinguish between the two. They're helpless, morally. Still guilty, but helpless. The Lord points to even the cattle. My compassion is just and right, even if just for the sake of the livestock and I don't know why the Lord mentions the cattle. It may be because Jonah's compassion was for a plant. And the cattle are actually animals instead of just a plant. It's probably just a a further point made to Jonah about the unjustifiableness of his anger over the plant. And therefore, his anger over God's compassion to Nineveh. So verses 10 and 11 then, they become the point of the whole story, which ends with an open-ended question. Should I not pity Nineveh? That's the open-ended question. This is the only prophetic book that ends with an open-ended question like this. Nahum ends with a question, but it's a rhetorical question, which is really a statement. This is the only prophetic book that ends with an open-ended question. Should I not? The Lord is expecting an answer from the reader, not just Jonah. Jonah, the book of Jonah, is leaving us with a question to answer. Are we in line with the central truth 
of the story. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The book of Jonah was written to confront, I would understand, the, the, uh, the nation of Israel's pride. Jonah is kind of the uh, consummate or the representative Israelite. And in, in recording this story, it's not really about a man and a fish. It's really about an attitude, a heart's attitude, and understanding God's mission in the world and it is, is meant to, to confront Israel's pride for their having lost connection with the Lord's mission, his saving purposes. I'm more concerned about how it warns us. And we're not proud because we are a, a nation in covenant with God. There are some in our country who may forget that. But to be American does not mean to be a Christian. We know that. Especially as our own country becomes more and more secularized in its worldview. So I don't think we, we're proud because we belong to God because we're Americans. We understand that the church, God's covenant people, is made up of all nations, all peoples, Races, languages, tribes. And we have the advantage of the New Testament that explains that to us, unlike Jonah. Jonah didn't have that. But how many of us miss God's mission because we are self-absorbed like Jonah was? How many of us are missing God's mission because we're self-absorbed convinced that we are somehow entitled to ease and to wealth, prosperity, without understanding that these are supplies for mission. Now, I'm not saying that you can't enjoy God's blessing, that you can't take vacation, that you can't buy a movie, whatever. I'm not saying, okay, I am saying that we need to be very alert to the temptation, though, to take it for granted and to see ourselves as the end point of all the blessing. That's the danger. That's the danger of affluence. That's the danger of material prosperity. Are we self-consumed with our rights? Again, don't get me wrong. I love, I value our Constitution. I value our Bill of Rights and how it protects freedoms, how it, how it supports human dignity as God has created humanity in his own image. And even if our founding fathers weren't Christians in the gospel sense of it, they had biblical framework from which they were working, a biblical morality. I value those things. But what if it was gone? What if those rights didn't exist? Would we no longer function as God's people? Would we understand that God's mission is still the mandate? That that doesn't change if you live in a, 
in a great country where there's a bill of rights or if you live in a country where you have no rights? The mission doesn't change. Do we see all of our rights as expendable for the gospel if necessary? And, the, and these are just examples on large cultural thinking levels, right? Every one of us on an individual level and in how we live our lives are confronted with this same temptation to self-absorption and forgetting that we as God's people are, are called to mission and to be conduits of compassion. And that that compassion first and foremost, addresses human condition. God's judgment, the need for repentance and salvation. We can be just as proud and self-absorbed as Jonah, even without the racial or national bias. So this is the message of Jonah for us. First of all, those who are in rebellion need salvation. God is compassionate, and he calls those who are outside of a relationship with himself to come to him, to repent, to turn from their evil ways, to, to turn from sin, to know his compassion, his compassion given to us through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That those who hear the warning and are pricked in their conscience like the Ninevites were, receive this call to come to him and to know forgiveness, to know a sparing from judgment. But the book of Jonah is also a rebuke to any pride and self-absorption that would knock us out of line with God's mission. I have pointed out before that really the story of Jonah has a mirror in the New Testament, and that is the parable of the prodigal son. You can almost see the parallels. The prodigal son is like the Ninevites, and he repents, he returns. And who is like Jonah? The older brother. Remember the older brother? Bitter, angry, that his younger brother's his younger brother's sin, the younger brother who rebelled, who went out, who lived the way he lived, came back and was received and was forgiven, angry, bitter. It's the same thing we see played out in Jonah. Jesus had the same rebuke for the religious leaders of his day that the book of Jonah had for the people of Israel in his day to remember the mission to stay in line with it. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So, Lord, we cry that this morning. We declare that. And, Lord, we ask that you would, you would help us to live faithfully. We have some advantages that Jonah didn't have. We have a, a completed scriptures, one in which the cross is revealed one in which real salvation, final salvation, a cleansing from sin, a forgiveness of sin is revealed in the, in the death of your son and in his resurrection. 
And Lord, we have your spirit who dwells within us. How much fewer excuses do we have than Jonah for remembering that your compassion toward us is a call to have compassion on others, to bring the gospel to bear, to remember that you forgive and redeem and restore all kinds of people, all peoples everywhere. And that you may do so in, just, in unexpected ways just as you did in an unexpected way to Jonah. Lord, we, we cry salvation belongs to you. And we want to see salvation. We want to see others know the joy, the compassion, the forgiveness of sins that we know. And we trust you because as you were the God who hurled the storm and appointed the fish and the plant and the worm and the scorching east wind, you are still the sovereign God who saves today. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.